I would invite you to stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1009. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there are some Bibles available on the back table there. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we can come, God, that we can hear from you, that we can be reminded of who we are in Christ, of what we are called to do and how we are called to live out the Christian life in this world. God, may we be motivated. May we, may we be sent out from here by your word, uh, equipping us to do the things that you have called us, called us to do uh, in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
When I was in junior high, we had a professional baseball player come and speak to our school. Uh, this was a big deal. It wasn't just any professional baseball player. It was Wisconsin's very own Coon Valley superstar, Scott Service. If you know where Coon Valley is, it's a little bitty town on Highway 14 on the way to La Crosse, kind of on the way from like Madison to La Crosse, where, down where I grew up. Um, town of about 765 people. So having a Major League Baseball player from that tiny town was kind of a big deal. And uh, Scott Service played for 10 years in the majors from 1991 to 2001. Some of you weren't even born yet uh, when he came and spoke to us. This is probably in like 1993 or 94. Um, and uh, he had played for the Astros, the Houston Astros. Then he played for the Chicago Cubs for a little while. Now he's actually the manager of the Seattle Mariners. So uh, kind of an, it's a big baseball fans might have heard of his name before Scott service played catcher and I played catcher growing up. So I was like really excited that he was coming and I had his baseball cards and everything. But I literally do not remember a single thing that he said to us that day. It was probably something like, you know, don't do drugs, be a good person, all that kind of stuff. Like be nice to your parents. Another motivational speaker who didn't change my life and who didn't motivate me to be a better person and to not do drugs and to be nice to my parents. And you might be asking yourself, well, what's wrong with motivational speakers? Couldn't we all use some motivation in our lives? Of course, we all could, right? I struggle with motivation a lot. The problem is that most of these types of messages, and I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't know Scott Service's heart. I literally, like I said, I don't remember anything he said. But like I said, it was probably something along the lines of just look within, right? Like be a better person, be strong in yourself. Looking within is what has got us all into the predicament that we are in right now. It is the root of all of our problems, trying to define our own reality. It was the cause of the first fall when Adam and Eve decided to try and play God and to do things their own way and not the way that God had clearly instructed them. So the question that we need to ask ourselves today is, where are we looking for motivation to live the Christian life? This is really what the whole letter to the Hebrews is about. The author's simple answer is the Sunday school answer. Jesus, where do we look for motivation on how to live the Christian life? We look to Jesus. It's pretty simple, right? Because the theme of Hebrews, the overarching theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. If you want three words, we're going to be going into the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. It's that simple. He's superior to, he's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Old Testament priests and the sacrificial system. We're going to see the author bang this drum over and over and over. Jesus is better. The pattern then throughout the letter, which actually most commentators think was a sermon. Uh, so the, the pattern kind of throughout this is this balance between, uh, or kind of this recurring thing between instruction and then exhortation. So they're told what is true, and then they're told what to do. If you want the kind of big theological words we use for that, it's orthodoxy followed by orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is what is true. What is our doctrine? What do we believe? That's really important. We need to know what we believe. 
but not just so we can fill our heads with a bunch of information. Like we're just walking around knowing all this stuff and not doing anything about it. It doesn't, doesn't do anything. We need to live it out. That orthopraxy is practicing what we preach, right? Doing those things and living them out in the world. Chapter 13 here of Hebrews is all exhortation. A lot of times it's instruction and exhortation in each chapter. This is the, the chapter that kind of, it's kind of the capstone of the whole sermon, really, and the, the sermon of Hebrews. It's the exhortation to live the Christian life in light of everything that the author has shared and been arguing about the superiority of Jesus in the first 12 chapters. In other words, because Jesus is better, this is how we ought to live. So I've titled this message, and if you haven't seen this yet, uh, there's an insert on, on the ins inside of your worship guide, blank, blank side there, and then we'll be looking at the back side a little bit later. Titled this message, Maintaining a Christian Ethic in a Hostile and Ungodly World. I believe that chapter 12 concludes with a tremendous word of encouragement and motivation as we consider how to do this. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A kingdom that cannot be shaken, ruled by a king who is unshakable, who has not only made us his children, but has made us heirs with Christ. And we are told in scripture that we will reign with him. So we are receiving this unshakable kingdom. And this is not some wimpy, like entering the kingdom by sneaking in through the back door kind of thing. We've got a front row seat to all that God is doing. And we are reminded here to live like it is true. Before we dive into our text here, I want to say a few words about how this fits into our series that we're doing here in September. If you're just joining us, we've been doing a shepherding series. That's uh, kind of in order to prepare our congregation for, uh, we're dividing up into shepherding teams. So each of the elders, plus James, as he's preparing to be an elder, uh, each of us will be having our own care team. So you will be assigned to one of the elders and they will be responsible for praying specifically for you and checking in on you and seeing how you are doing. And if you have needs, that is kind of your go-to person to contact. Um, so that is, is what we've been kind of sharing about a little bit, and that's, that's what we're trying to implement here. Uh, the first week of our series, we looked at John chapter 10. We saw how Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one whose voice we must all listen to. The under shepherds, so the elders, must listen to his voice. The sheep, uh, the congregation, must all listen to Jesus' voice, and we saw that there are a lot of false teachers, there are wolves, there are people who are trying to drag the sheep away, and it is the job of the shepherd to protect the sheep, and ultimately Jesus is that good shepherd. Last week, we saw in Titus chapter 1, the qualifications and the expectations of elders as under shepherds, how they are to live and the things they are to teach, they're to watch their life and their doctrine closely. Today, here in Hebrews chapter 13, we are looking at the expectations of the congregation, mainly in verse 17, which we'll get to, but we're going to look at this entire chapter because I think all of these things are really interconnected in a helpful way. Then in two weeks, as we start 
Hebrews. We're actually going to be looking at Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. So we're going to start at the end, and you'll see in two weeks why we do that. Uh, but we're going to finish uh, all of Hebrews 13 uh, in, these, in these next two weeks, and then we'll, then we'll go back to chapter one after that. Well, so how should we think about maintaining an ethic, a Christian ethic in a hostile and ungodly world? The exhortations in chapter 13 cover a number of different areas. Look with me here at the beginning of chapter 13. We see in the first three verses, a communal emphasis on love and care for one another. We are to love the brothers, meaning loving one another in the faith. We are to show hospitality here. And as you see this phrase about entertaining angels unaware, uh, this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham uh, and Sarah hosted and, and served uh, God's messengers. Not going to get into any like angelology here, but that's what that reference is there. Then we are to remember those who are in prison and mistreated. These are the ways then that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. Our love for one another, our hospitality, and our love for the least of these. This is what true community looks like. Knowing, loving, and serving one another. Being mindful of the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christianity doesn't work correctly in an individualistic society. We weren't made to do this thing on our own, but we were made to survive and to thrive in community. And we talk about that all the time here, so this should be no surprise. Verses four and five then touch on some areas of private holiness, uh, but these are not without corporate impact. The honoring of the marriage covenant and sexual purity of the marriage relationship are foundational to the health of a local church. Again, the world is watching. And when Christians don't value marriage and the vows they've taken any more than the world around us, is it any wonder that our secular culture is increasingly seeing little need for marriage? The warning about God's judgment here should cause us to sit up in our seats a bit. God is not messing around here. And the rampant sexual perversion that is in our faces every day is not something that we should turn a blind eye to. We must be vigilant in our pursuit of sexual purity in our lives and in our relationships for God's glory and for our own good. The next admonition in verse 5 concerns what is an equally dangerous temptation toward idolatry, keeping our lives free from the love of money and being content with what we have. This mirrors the qualifications for elders that we saw last week in Titus chapter 1. The sexual purity of elders and their, them not being in it for the financial gain, those are things that need to be mirrored in the flock. I was reading this morning in my Bible reading plan, and I just love how the Lord times these things. I'm in, Ex or I'm in uh, Ezekiel right now, kind of crazy book of visions and judgments. And Ezekiel chapter 22, the whole chapter is all about judgment on the people of God. And the two main issues are this rampant sexual immorality among the people of God, all these things that they're doing that are outside of God's design and plan for, for sex inside of the marriage covenant, 
And then the other thing was their greed for financial gain. So like these two issues, they just keep coming back over and over again in scripture. And I've mentioned this several times. I think a lot of times I, I think back to, you know, before I learned like how to read the Bible, how, you know, how to interpret different books of the Bible, uh, kind of viewed the book of Proverbs as just this book full of all these like pithy sayings, right? Like, oh, do this and do that. But if you read the book of Proverbs, especially the first eight chapters, it's all about wisdom and how to live wisely in this world. And the Proverbs was actually written by Solomon to his son. It's written basically to the sons of Israel. It's written to young men to answer the question, how are you to live in the area of sexual purity and the area of financial responsibility? Like once you, once you know that, you, you can't read the book of Proverbs in the same way ever again. And just listen to a few verses that we see in the very, in those first eight chapters. First chapter, it's making this argument that there are these people who are trying to get you to go after them for, for unjust gain. It says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So this is literally a life and death issue here. Going for greedy and unjust gain takes away the life of its possessors. Proverbs 6.23, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And then chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, all at once he follows her. Her is that the married woman who is seeking to entice him while her husband is away on business. Okay, so he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So if you're greedy for unjust gain, if you're going after sexual immorality and, and illicit sexual relationships, it will kill you. Like God doesn't pull any punches here. It's going to kill you. It's going to cost you your life. So it's no, no surprise that we see this warning here. We see it in Ezekiel, right? We see it all throughout scriptures. And these two things are constantly tied together. It's tied together here for us in Hebrews. So the message is, don't be foolish and die. Be wise and live. And the wisdom we see here in Hebrews 13, it's in the promises of God that we see in verse 5 and 6. These two quotes from the Old Testament. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, comes from Joshua chapter 1. And he says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Which is a quote from Psalm 118. And the question for us is, do we believe that these things are true? Do we believe that God will never leave us or forsake us? That no matter how much we run from him, no matter how much we go our own way, that he will always pursue us. He will always run to us, even when we are in sin. He will not leave us. Do we believe that he is our helper, that we don't need to be afraid of what anyone can do to us? Because our hope is not in our security and our safety in this world. It's in the Lord. Do we believe those things or do we try to control our own lives in these areas because we don't believe that God will provide as he has promised to do? Part of our problem is that we don't look beyond ourselves. This is what the author of Hebrews seeks to address here in verses 7 through 9. 
So how do we look beyond ourselves? What were they instructed to do? First, there are three things as it relates to their former leaders. They were to remember their leaders, those who spoke to them the word of God. This is in verse 7. This here is talking about their past leaders. It's probably those who maybe initially planted this church and are either deceased or are no longer with them. They are to remember their former leaders. They are to consider the outcome of their way of life, and then they are to imitate their faith. All three of these things point us beyond ourselves, and it is a recognition that God has given authority to some in the church, and that that authority is to be respected and followed as those leaders follow Jesus, which we see is the second way that we look beyond ourselves. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus doesn't change. He's the same Lord that your former leaders followed and imitated, and you should imitate and follow them in their faith in Jesus. And the third and final way that we look beyond ourselves is to stick to the teaching of God's word. We see this stated negatively here in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Again, this has been a constant theme throughout our series. We saw in John 10 that the sheep need to hear the shepherd's voice and not the voice of the false shepherds, the strangers and the wolves, those who are false teachers. Titus chapter 1, those who were teaching things for shameful gain were upsetting whole families and they were to be rebuked. Titus and the elders were to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. A part of the issue here in Hebrews, we see it in the second half of verse 9, there seems to be some similar issues that Titus faced in Crete and that Timothy faced in Ephesus related to food laws that people were trying to impose in the churches. We're not going to get into all that, but In Hebrews, as we're going to see when we dive into this letter, this kind of idea of some food laws and things, it also relates very closely to the issues surrounding the priests and the whole sacrificial system. I just want to highlight a few things that we see here in verses 10 through 14. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So there's this this recognition, which we see all throughout the letter, this idea of a temporary sacrifice versus a permanent sacrifice. And when it talks about the altar here, it's talking about Jesus' death. It's talking about the cross of Christ. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. It's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, that's final sacrifice, not these ongoing sacrifices that the high priests would do day in and day out. The second thing is this idea of outside the camp. So um, the high priest brings the sacrifices outside the camp to burn them. It says in verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. 
Now, what's going on here, this imagery that's going on. So in the, in the Old Testament, when they had the tabernacle, they would set up the, the, the traveling tabernacle and there would be these walls. That's where the camp would be. The camp would be, um, be considered inside that tent in terms of the sacrifices. The, when they took the animals out to burn them, they would have to go outside the camp. They would go outside the walls of the tabernacle and even outside of where the people were camped to burn these sacrifices. What the imagery here is, is that Jesus, Jesus went outside the camp. Jesus was not crucified. He was not sacrificed for sin inside the walls of Jerusalem. So this, this picture of the city of Jerusalem is analogous to the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Jesus, the picture of Jesus being taken outside of the city and crucified outside of the city is like those, those unclean things being taken outside, being slaughtered outside of the city. And what else happened in the Old Testament is if someone had, had like grievously sinned and broken God's law, they wouldn't, they wouldn't kill them inside the camp. They would take them outside of the camp to execute them. So even Jesus being crucified outside of the city kind of mirrors this picture of the criminals being taken outside of the city or outside of the camp to be put to death. Well, so what does this idea here? He says, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. What did this mean to go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured? Dennis Johnson in his commentary says, if the original hearers were to maintain their affiliation with Jesus and his people, they would risk reproach and exclusion from the Jewish community in which they were once welcome. But that loss is more than counterbalanced by the benefits flowing from Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Atonement, forgiveness, cleansing, confident access, and fellowship with the living God. And so it is with us as we seek to go to Jesus outside the camp. If we are in Christ, this is our reality in this world. We must suffer in the same sense of not being accepted, of being excluded in the community in which we were once welcome. I remember this as I was reading this quote, I was thinking just very distinctively back to my own testimony. I became a Christian in college uh, in the, on April 1st, 2000. Uh, and on Easter weekend that, uh, that year, just a few, few weeks afterwards, I went back home. I was hanging out with some of my friends from high school. We had a bonfire. Uh, there was a lot of extracurricular activities going on that I used to often partake in, and I was not partaking in them, and many people were very surprised, and I wasn't like running around throwing Bibles at people, but I was just telling people how I became a Christian, and God had changed, like totally transformed my life, and this idea of feeling reproach and exclusion from a community in which I was once welcome really began to happen very distinctively, and that kind of division between myself and my friends that I had been very, very close with for a long time, I started to, started to realize that um, there was just some divide there because of my faith in Christ, not because of anything that I did or said to them, but just they didn't want any part of that. And honestly, uh, for the most part, it's kind of remained that way to this day. Uh, there's a few of them who have become Christians and been able to have some interesting conversations about how all that went down back then. Uh, but for the most part, it's been a big challenge. But what Johnson says here is that the loss is more than counterbalanced by the benefits flowing from Jesus' shed blood on the cross. 
I wouldn't trade anything that I have now. I wouldn't trade the forgiveness, the joy that I have in Christ now to go back and just be pals with those guys again. Like it's not worth it. So how can we bear this reproach? And maybe your story is, is not that drastic. Maybe it's more drastic than that. Maybe you've experienced that type of um, being shunned from a community that you were once a part of. Maybe it's a family thing. So how can we do that? How can we bear that reproach? I think the answer is in verse 14. It says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, if you turn back a page, if you have the Pew Bible, you just turn back one page to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at this idea of the city that is to come versus the earthly city. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, speaking of Abraham in verse 10, says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Look down at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Suffering and worship and doing good and sharing what we have, as we see in verses 15 and 16, are admonitions to those who follow Jesus outside the camp and who look for a lasting city. The one that we are told about in Revelation chapter 21, as we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Seeing the connection there between the purity in the marriage relationship. Christ and his bride meeting on that day. And now then we come to the verse that was the reason why I chose this passage in the first place. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Timothy Whitmer in his book, The Shepherd Leader, which I think we've mentioned a few times before, this is one of the books that we went through in our elder training. He quotes one of his seminary professors who calls this, verse 17, one of the texts that terrify. And I think it terrifies in a dual sense, meaning that there is a great responsibility upon both the leaders in the church and on the congregation. Whitmer quotes from a commentary by Philip Edgecombe Hughes, which is a great commentary on Hebrews. He says, Christian leadership is intended for the advantage of all, not just for the advantage of those who hold positions of authority. And good and successful leadership is to, to a considerable degree dependent upon the willing response of obedience and submission on the part of those who are under authority. Then Whitmer goes on to say, therefore, not only are the shepherds to know the sheep 
and take responsibility for them, but the sheep are to know that is to respect and appreciate those who are over them in the Lord. This is the nature of the shepherd-sheep relationship, with shepherds lovingly caring for the sheep and the sheep submitting to their loving leadership. This is the biblical framework within which leaders fulfill their responsibilities as shepherds. These principles should be taught within local congregations, not only for the benefit of the leadership, but in order that members will understand the importance of followership. That is, that the proper exercise of authoritative leadership is for the benefit of the sheep and the glory of God. I think one of the ways to best understand this is to look at our membership vows and the ordination vows of your elders. So you can turn to the backside of that insert on your worship guide. I'm going to read through all of these, but I just want to highlight a few things. At the top, for those of you who are members at Livingstone Church, these are members' membership vows for the PCA. They're the same for, our, for every church in our denomination. And we talk about these as we you know, go through our membership classes. You're asked these in your uh, membership interview, and then you're asked when you officially stand up here and we recognize you as a new member, you're asked these questions again. Questions one through three are all affirmations that basically you are believing and living out the truths of the gospel and that you are doing what the first 16 verses of Hebrews chapter 13 exhort you to do. Vows four and five are about how you will support the church and submit to its government which is the first clause in Hebrews 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Look at vow number four. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Vow five. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study or promote its purity and peace? As a member of this church, this is your responsibility before the Lord before your brothers and sisters in Christ and before your leaders, you have taken vows to do these things. The vows of the of your elders, similarly, uh, verses, sorry, I keep saying verses, vows, vows one through three are believing the scriptures, believing our confession of faith, and believing our system of church government in the PCA. So those are kind of somewhat analogous to membership vows one and three. Vow number four, do you accept the office of ruling elder in this church and prom promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of God of which you have been made an officer. So that's kind of first Titus one, first Timothy three language there that's saying you're going to do those things uh, you are vowing to do those things. Vow number five, do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Vow number six, do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? So these are the vows that the ruling elders took when we had our organizational service in May. And these are the vows that any future ruling elders that we install will take these same exact vows. That night, when we had our service, we asked the congregation the question that's at the bottom of the page. 
Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a ruling elder? And do you promise to yield him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him? It is a vow that you have taken. That it comes, that idea is not just something like we're saying like, hey, we need to be in charge here and we need to control your lives, right? Because this is what we want to do. No, this comes directly from Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That is what you are called to do. And if you're a member of this church, you have taken vows to do that. And the writer of Hebrews gives these as imperatives. These are commands. They are not just suggestions. Paul actually gives a similar admonition in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, where he writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul's reason here, because of their work, sounds very similar to what the Hebrews writer gives as a reason for obedience and submission to leaders in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The word that is translated here as they are keeping watch, in Greek, it's just one word that literally means to not be caught sleeping. So your elders are those who are to not be caught sleeping. In other words, they are to be sleepless over your souls. This is the imagery from Psalm 127, verse 1, where it says, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So it is a comfort to the leaders of the church to know that it is not ultimately us who watch over your souls, but it is the Lord. The Lord watches over your souls. Even if the watchman of the city falls asleep, the Lord watches. And if the Lord isn't watching, the, the human's watching is in vain. So if the Lord isn't caring for your souls and watching over your souls, us trying to do that as your elders isn't really going to do a whole lot of good. So the point is the Lord is watching over your souls and he calls us to watch over your souls, to stay awake and to care for you and to watch over your souls. And that is our responsibility. And we will give an account to the Lord. We see that in the middle of verse 17 there. That is a terrifying thought, that we will give an account for the Lord for how we watch over your souls. Interestingly, though, the writer does not stop there. This is very important, and this is really kind of the, this is kind of the, like, gut punch, okay, for why we're doing this message when we just last week talked about the responsibility of elders. This is the responsibility for you, the congregation. He reminds them that they have a part to play, you have a part to play, in how our account giving will go. Look with me at the last sentence in verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, what is the this here? Let them do this. This is watching over your souls. It is acknowledged here that this can be a burdensome and difficult task. It's not me standing up here trying to have a pity party and saying, 
oh, it's so hard to be a pastor and to care for all these people. But it is a burdensome task. It's something that leaders can be forced to do with groaning. It is better for you if we can fulfill our duty to keep watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. You do not want leaders who are miserable because you are making them miserable by your disobedience and your lack of submission. Zach, sticking his, sticking his tongue out at me as I say that. But trust me, you don't want that. You don't want us to be miserable because that's of no advantage to you. So if you make our lives miserable by your disobedience and your lack of submission, which ultimately is not against us, it's against the Lord. So, I mean, that's the, that's the gut punch and the like terrifying thing of this text, right? But you don't want that. And we should all, like, this text should, should terrify all of us. It really should. This should set us all straight. Your elders should seek to joyfully watch over your souls, and you should seek to aid us in doing so. Again, otherwise you will be disadvantaged. How so? I've said this. You will have to, because we will have to groan about you, and none of us want that, right? None of us, you don't want a groaning pastor, and you don't want to be the one who makes him have to groan, Right? I do have to say, though, that this is not just some pie-in-the-sky picture of this like perfect harmony between elders and the congregation. It's not saying that there's never going to be conflict. There is, right? There will be conflict. We all know that it's unrealistic to just think that there's going to be peace and harmony all the time. But we should all seek to strive for the purity and the peace and the edification of the church as our membership vows and as our elder vows state. Okay. Removing the gut punch. The last thing that I want to focus on here is in verse 18 in the request for prayer. Please, please do this. Please pray for us. I would ask you as a church to do this. We pray for you. We are committed to praying regularly for all of you as your leaders, and we do So please pray for us. We desperately need it. Just wrapping up here, kind of bringing things full circle. We don't need a motivational speaker to come in and give us some empty platitudes about how to live a more fulfilling life. There is an urgent need for maintaining a Christian ethic in a hostile and ungodly world in order that God might be glorified and that Christ might be made known to those who are perishing. And we do this together in community by knowing and loving and serving God and one another and by our leaders and our our congregants fulfilling what God has called us to do. So let us, brothers and sisters, together seek to do this as we praise and glorify the one who calls us to himself and who sends us out into the world as his ambassadors. Let us pray. Father, this is a terrifying text. This is a great challenge to all of us. 
This is a great reminder that we need your grace. We need your spirit to work in our midst. We need wisdom as congregants. We need wisdom as leaders to live out these truths so that your name might be honored and glorified in the world around us. Father, we pray for strength. We pray for wisdom. We pray for grace and power from your spirit to live these things out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.